Hello there, fair podcast listener, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Emotion at Work podcast. Before today's episode begins, um, I just wanted to do a bit of an introduction and set some context. So we have two guests on the podcast with us this week. So we have Kershad Denegara and Claire Genkai-Breeze, and they're from an organisation called Relume, spelled R-E-L-U-M-E, and you can find them online at relume.co.uk. And we have a, a very fascinating, deep and wide-ranging conversation. We talk about leadership we talk about some of the traits and aspects that um, are important around modern day leadership and for modern day leaders. We also talk about what are the near enemies of some of these traits or some of these attributes that are needed from a leadership point of view. And then we also get into some specifics and some tangible details around what can we do to, you know, to, what hints and tips, guidance or advice can we give to leaders or people working with leaders um, to help them really think about the the idea of, of vulnerability of identity and of, of effective leadership in the workplace um i think this is the first podcast recording that i've done that i got wholly lost in the conversation and um, so i almost forgot my role as as host and interviewer and just got fully kind of embedded and lost in the conversation and i've listened to this conversation three times now once when i was there and present and taking part and twice on as i've listened back to it since then and it, there's content in it that's still intrigues and and surprises and challenges my thinking so um we recorded this uh, the three of us sat in a, in a room it's a bit echoey at times there wasn't much padding so the acoustics weren't amazing but they're not bad either um so sit back relax pay some attention enjoy because it's a good one here we go Welcome to today's episode of the Emotion at Work podcast and today we're talking about emotion at work within individuals when they're challenging perceived wisdom or customs and practice um, and in a first for the podcast we've got two guests with us today um, and our guests are practitioners, authors and deep thinkers as well. So um, there's a couple of books which we'll come into as we go but one of the books that really kind of piqued my attention was Flawed but Willing. So it openly accepts that I'm fallible but I want to do my best. Um, and so as someone that's starting their podcast journey and making mistakes but doing my best all the same, um, I'm really uh, excited to have our two guests today. So we have Kershiv and Claire. So welcome both. Welcome to the Emotional Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So um, I'm really curious about this idea of flawed but willing. So let's start there if we can. So tell me, tell me a bit more about that. Um, <clears throat> the idea... Actually, it wasn't the idea coined by um, the chap who uh, set up the Eden Project? Yes, Tim Schmidt. Tim Schmidt. And okay. he, he described um, some work that we'd done in, in the, the first book that we wrote together yeah. as a Bible for the flawed but willing. And okay. it was a great phrase, and it really got us to think about, well, it's just, it's just a fantastic thing, isn't it? To mm. know that you're flawed, to accept that you are, to not need to hide it. And, and then that notion of willingness to be willing to go forward despite it, willing to put yourself out there, willing to lead, willing to try, willing to experiment. And it struck me at the time that willingness is a massively underrated idea in human behaviour. Mm. Yeah. The, the, the courage associated with that is fantastic. Yeah. And he, he was particularly coming at the world from the perspective of someone who had had a very significant ambition, something that was rooted in initially a piece of hope and imagination that, that then over time was manifested uh, in a form that 
no one would have drawn a linear line to okay. where we started and where they had started. And so it was particularly encouraging for us, particularly as what he was referring to was our first venture into, into writing a book, that uh, someone who had stood for something, a, a piece of ambition, a piece of hope, had manifested it against the odds mm. a lot of times, um, had become a kind of poster child for uh, a, a innovative form of leadership that we weren't used to, so mm. this was uh, almost a decade ago now, uh, got so much uh, stimulation and inspiration from, from what we were writing about. And he was the person who encouraged us to then turn our, our minds to this attention of all what is it that constitutes that type of individual? What are they made up of? And, mm. and what are some of the capabilities and strengths and, and character um, attributes that they would bring uh, to their work? Where it, where it particularly landed in the, in the corporate sphere is, of course, the traditional corporate sphere that we typically work at and the senior levels that we typically work at. Until relatively recently, to be flawed was not something you would ever put your hand up to. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the potential for blame and mm. diminishment and um, some kind of fantasy that your career would be uh, slowed or stopped or that you would be ejected from a business because of your flaws and because of your mistakes was and still is to a large extent very, very prominent. Mm. And yet we knew from the work that we'd done that if you didn't tell the story with hindsight, but you told the story as you were going along, that most of the really substantial achievements and transformations in large corporate, complex, global businesses came about through individuals who were willing to put their flaws front and center mm -hmm. and encourage the team they were working with to similarly put their flaws front and center and to work through them rather than avoid them. Yeah. And that, that's what we got really intrigued by, <clears throat> and we were very intrigued by how that seemed to somehow bound a team and a business together rather than cause it to fragment, how it seemed to accelerate success rather than decelerate it, how it seemed to, to be the um, lifeblood of individuals being more and more successful rather than less and less mm -hmm. successful. And so it felt like there was a private story about how your flaws could underpin your success that was not being told uh, at the expense of, sorry, uh, 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 instead what was told was this public story that was very easy to tell in hindsight, which is typically elegant and smooth and, and perfect, like we have these heroic leaders who knew what they were doing all along, yeah. it was actually the people that we have been exposed to who have achieved heroic things would often say to you in private they didn't have a clue while they were going along and there were plenty of moments of uh, uh, iteration and, and failure and experimentation and prototyping and, and testing and adjusting and, and and that's not an easy story to tell but that's the one we wanted to try and get into more. Mm. I'm sorry, I was just wondering about that just maybe um, reflect that there's a, there's a middle position on this which we frequently see now in big corps which is where people have learned a behaviour about being able to describe their weaknesses. Okay, and the it's almost like an inauthentic... Yeah, something, okay. something now, uh, yes, it's like a learned protocol for being able to, to appear to be comfortable with describing weaknesses. Okay. And so I, I witnessed a few years ago, I mean, a stellar example of that, where, um, where a new leader coming into a team put down on the table in front of the team on the first team meeting 
every single piece of 360 feedback and psychometric testing you'd ever received, laid it on the table in a pile, and basically said, okay, so if you want to know about me, you need to read that. And, and that wasn't what you're describing. That's something else. What that is, is playing the corporate game really, really well, appearing to be able to work with the feedback. But it was almost used as a kind of defensive structure yeah. to say, know me, know what I'm not good at, know what my flaws are, and then do as I say. Mm. And, it, and it subsequently turned out to be that way. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a wide gulf, actually, between what you're describing, Kershid, and, and what people default to in organisational terms, which is, which is not the conversation of intimacy and vulnerability and working it in the moment. It's, it's the conversation of declaring my strengths or declaring my weaknesses in a structured format, almost to say, this is who I am, get over it. So it, it's using authority overlaid onto um, strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And I think that's much more common, actually, we give it credit for. So there's a, there's a sense of what Kirshen's describing has aliveness in it and possibility in it and um, intimacy and relationship and being on the edge of, what, of what's known and uh, excitement about it, like a community. Really. Mm. This other thing is a protocol, it's a habit, it's a, a structure, it's a, it's a deadening experience. So, sorry, is, is that in a... Because I suppose that's true in a couple of thoughts for me. So one is um, almost the the uh, the physical removal of self from that process. So by putting the you know by almost like putting the pieces of paper on the table and saying this is this is me. If you want to know me, read these. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that's smacks of abdication of ownership. You know, I'm, I'm because I'm not I'm, I'm not owning that. I'm I'm not owning that information and doing something with it, I'm putting it there for you to consume in, in whatever way you do. Um, so yeah, so, yeah, I just, yeah, the, the way that was done was interesting. Um, but also I think there's the, um, I don't know how to articulate it well, so when I think about the work that Brenny Brain does, so that she does around vulnerability and then her consequential work that she's done into sharing, um, uh, to what extent has that encouraged people to be vulnerable in a, in a genuine, authentic way, or has that encouraged people to say, "Oh, I should do my I should do vulnerability. Yes. I must make sure if I'm a leader, I must do vulnerability." Yeah, and there's an increasing yeah. rhetoric around that. Mm. Uh, we, we we used a, a concept that came from UK originally uh, from from. Uh, Buddhist-based thinking in the first book called The, the Near Enemy. And so we had a, a number of distinctions in the first book about what it takes to challenge the status quo. Mm. And for each of those distinctions, we also talked about what the near enemy of that is. Okay. Do, you want, do you want to say a little bit about what, what, what the near enemy is rooted in for a moment? Because that might just help with this question. So, so the, the idea is that you, you set out to cause something or you set out to become something. And through your practice... Um, you end up in a particular place. You think you've arrived at where you wanted to be, but you're a thousand miles away from it. And in Buddhist terms, the, the easiest one to look at is um, uh, Buddhist practice equanimity, the idea of in the face of uh, a lot of difficulty, having an equanimous approach. But, but the practice of that, the, the near enemy of that is indifference. Okay. And so it, 
it may look the same on a cursory glance, someone being able to be really, really equanimous in the face of difficulty, mm-hmm. but the, 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 the slide away from that is, is just experiencing indifference towards what's happening. Okay. So what you were describing when we were talking about it earlier was, mm. was almost like using, using self-awareness as a commodity. Yes. So it's a, in what, and I think in the book actually we described self. The, the near enemy of self-awareness is self-labeling. Okay. So yeah. it's, it's that idea of um, data as self. Mm. Because the conversation that you were describing, Kershaw, when we've seen people engaged in that work, um, what we see and what we experience is a vibration. People vibrate because what they're saying is new to them. What they're disclosing feels fresh to them, and they're not quite certain where it's going to go, mm. which is completely different from slapping a bunch of 360 down on table. Yeah. yeah. And would you mind just expanding on uh, equanimous? Did I get that right? Equanimity. Equanimity. Yeah. Would you mind just expanding on that a little bit more? It's not, it's not a word I'm familiar with, for example. So, so the idea of equanimity is this ability to, in the face of stimulation, difficulty, things that might activate you, mm-hmm. instead of uh, being caught up in this and then caught up in the next thing and caught up in the next thing or strongly rejecting something or strongly attaching to something, mm-hmm. being able to be very intimate, very intimate with what's going on and at the same time um, not caught up in it. So it's a okay. spacious quality of presence without being under-attached or avoidant to certain things and over-attached to others. Okay. It's not a bad leadership quality actually. Okay, and and then the near enemy you said then was indifference, which is where you're almost. I don't. So you've got caring, but with caring about it, but with um, an element of distance, and just not caring about it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah? yeah okay. totally right. Okay, well so said, then, Master. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so if we apply that back to the the area we were just in around what it means to work with your flaws, mm. then the potentially the near enemy of vulnerability is. Is what it's like a it's a lack of responsibility of some form, I guess. I, could, I, I haven't got a very precise wording for it, but uh, but I often see the near enemy of vulnerability along the lines that Claire has has described. It's a it's a it's an act. Yes, yes. It's yeah. a well-rehearsed act. It leaves you. It's like being, you said about yourself being somewhere else. Mm. It's, it's a bit like being behind yourself. You know, not really fully present to it. And you know it when you're on the receiving end of it, if you're familiar with what's going on mm. internally, right? It's the, the somatic reaction is at best a kind of neutrality, you mm. know, something didn't quite land on me. At worst, I sometimes find myself quite um, repulsed or revulsed by it. Mm. Like there's something else going on that I can't quite get access to, but, but because it's being wrapped up in this in this near enemy vulnerability, I, feel even more nauseous around it because yeah. it's 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 not just a difficult thing, it's a difficult thing wrapped up in this virtuous thing and that makes it quite difficult to be on the receiving end of. Um, so that, that, that subtle edge between what, what we're working with and what the near enemy of it is, is, is important mm. to be able to distinguish for people doing this work. Yeah, because it, it reminds me a little bit of um, a conversation I was having with my where my supervisor, who I did my master's degree, we were talking recently about performance and how people perform emotion, so how people do emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, so emotion is often seen as something that is, is sort of, you know, passively happens to us in, you know, if you go with the classic stimulus response type um, approach. 
but actually some that people will perform emotion, they will do emotion in a particular way. And that could be as in almost inconsequential as being surprised when you get given a present that you already know what it is. So on Father's Day, um, I got given three gifts by my children, and one of which was a t-shirt. But my son had already showed me a aforementioned t-shirt. Um, but I couldn't let on, or I wasn't supposed to know that, that, I, that I knew. So to my other, even though my son's only four, so he didn't know what he'd done really. But to my other children, who are 10 and 7 respectively, they wanted it to be a surprise. So there was a need for me to perform that surprise. To which my wife winked at me when she saw me do it because she knew that you know it wasn't a, it wasn't genuine. But I, I can imagine that that performance is something that leaders will will do. Both that so it could be about performance of emotion, but it could also be performance of oh I I need to do some I need to do some floor acknowledgement now. This would be the time for floor acknowledgement. This would be right, the time which, which right. floor shall I acknowledge because right. I need to do that. And one of the one of the places you see that play out, and this is not done maliciously or with a kind of deliberate intent is is post the vibrant, real, touching, moving, frightening experience mm. of working with your flaws. Imagine a leader that's, that's doing that work and in that process with, with their team. It's real in that moment, but then what they imagine is somehow that they can then keep telling the story of that mm. as a as a, as a version of what really happened. And of course, every time they tell the story, the more distant they become of what mm. the actual experience was like. Yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of version of what yeah. just happened with yeah. you, right? You, yeah. in, in the moment of the surprise being spoiled, in inverted commas, you had a real experience, right? And then subsequent to that, every time you had to enact it. Yeah. And we find that a lot as well here, that, that the more distant one gets from the original experience, the harder it is to to land it. And of course what we want people to do is not to tell the story of their experience, but to have another experience and another experience and another experience because the context, the environment, the world is changing around them all the time and therefore they have to keep working with that material. Um, it's not enough to have, uh, I think, what, what happens in the kind of old paradigm of, of going on a course. It's not enough to go on a course, have an epiphany and then keep telling the story of that and for, yeah. for another 10 years, imagining that you're doing the real work. You're not. Yeah? Yeah. You're just telling the story of the work, which is a very different way of operating. I don't know if I've communicated that clearly, but we see a heck of a lot of that, and particularly in senior organisations. It's, it's something that they become very reliant on. To the extent that, when you check in with the organisation around them, they pretty much know the story that's going to be told. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. oh right, yeah, she will tell the story about that time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's coming up in this next, in next piece. Um, mm. And of course, that then just breeds the very thing we don't want, which is scepticism and, and distance, and the, the treating of a leadership conversation like it's a presentation mm. the whole time, which is not what we're after. So, how, how do you help? Um, a question for both of you. How, how do you help and or work with? So, when you see that, so you, know, you uh, so I get a sense that your relationships that you have with your clients tend to be quite long in duration. So when you see that, so you see that epiphany moment where somebody genuinely has one of those, you know, working with their flaws moments and then it gets regurgitated out. Um, what do you do to, to either help the, work with the individual or to challenge that? How, how do you, you know, so I think from, you know, if I'm, if I'm in my listener's shoes and they're thinking, yeah, you know what, I relate to that, I see that, you know, my, you know, my boss or, you know, my peer, they do that all the time. How do you go about challenging that or working with that to, yeah. 
think of a key notion in our work is that it's never done disconnected from what's going on commercially inside right. the particular business we're working in. And so uh, the, an immediate thought that comes to your question is that you return people to the current work right. a lot of the time. So if someone, for example, is talking about, I don't know, you know, their, their, their flaws and their vulnerability around um, uh, how perfectionistic they are, right. for example, and they, and they tip, trip into another story about that, what we would gently and sometimes very firmly do is encourage them to, to, to stop the um, history lesson and to apply that insight to what is going on now. Right. So what is going on now in your business, in your team, in your meeting, in this very moment, in this conversation, right. that means you can apply that insight live okay. to see whether it still has validity to your work or whether actually it's just an old story you keep telling yourself right. because there may be something else that now needs to emerge that we need to meet or face into right. that is more relevant for now. Okay. And uh, so I think that, that, that returning to this current moment is, is the, the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. People get addicted to epiphanies, don't they? Mm. I mean, absolutely addicted to the idea that, that learning only has validity if there's a peak moment or a strong emotion attached mm -hmm. to it or a shift in awareness. And actually, not all organisational life is going to be like that on an ongoing basis. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you can't be really intimately alive to your experience on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just that it's not all going to be intensely dramatic. Mm. So sometimes we get people who get what I would describe as dramatic insights. And if they're not careful, they assume that the next one has to look the same in terms of drama okay. and so forth and so forth. And so what Kershaw is describing is it's not about normalizing. Well, yeah, I suppose it is to some degree. It's like integrating it, normalizing it into what's happening now. Mm. So, I mean, awareness can be an extraordinarily powerful thing about relatively small things yeah. and shift the way you feel or experience um, or do your work. But it doesn't all have to be about dramatic epiphanies. So, um, I feel compelled to share something that happened to me yesterday um, just to see if I'm. Because what, from hearing what you just said, I experienced yesterday that, that makes me think about that as an example. So there's there's something I've been struggling to do for a while. So in a in, in an almost Brian Tracy kind of time management way, I needed to eat a frog yesterday. <laughs> it was something I really needed to do. And I know I've been procrastinating about it for a while. And I arrived at King's Cross, and my my plan was to go to a co-working space that I used just around the corner and to, to go and do that. And then instead I remembered that a while ago when I used to be doing tasks like the one I needed to complete, I would walk up and down the footpath between my village at home and the next village, and I would speak into my phone while I was doing it. So I'd plug my earphones in and I'd, I'd, and I'd walk and, and talk and think about what it was that I needed to do. So I thought, hey, you know what, I'm going to go for a walk instead. I'm not going to go to the co-working space, I'm going to go for a walk instead. So I walked down Euston Road into Regis Park, um, and ended up stopping kind of up near the zoo. But by the time I finished, there was a phone call in between, but by the time I got to Regent's Park, I got to the zoo, it was done. Granted, it was in an audio, it was in an audio, so it was, it was in, we got teas and coffees in the room. Um, it, was in a, it was in an audio um, file format, but it was done. Um, and it, it was, I guess it was another realization for me that, of, that I, I, had a, I had a strategy that I knew in my own experience, worked for me when I am procrastinating. Yet 
it has taken me however many days I've been procrastinating on that to remind myself what I needed to be. Yeah. But there wasn't a big drama with actually. It's just, yeah. You know, it's a good solid 20, 25 minutes worth of thinking. Yeah. And, and I didn't feel strange walking down London talking into my earphones because yeah, everybody does it all the way walking down the street anyway. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so it's yeah. just would that would that be a yeah, an example of which. Yeah, yes, yeah. that kind of willingness to, um, to to notice something knocking on your door, mm. basically, and then it doesn't have to be a drama. And the, the other thing that Kershaw was describing, I think, is that kind of ability to nest something in now rather than then mm. is really, really important. So nesting things in now, whatever whatever the now looks like, is a terribly important leadership ability, mm. really. And, and of course... Most of the work we do with people is in a social learning way, isn't it? I mean, we tend to do things in teams or in groups wherever we possibly can. So that that nowness often means other people will have an opinion about it too, and there'll be data coming that, um, into the conversation that other people might not have been aware of. Just just wrestling with that question about how do we do it? How do we do it? Unrelentingly might be a way to describe okay. it. Yeah. I mean, it's that we just don't give up. And then what we find is that a certain percentage of people who are working in leadership roles in businesses pick up the muscle of being unrelenting about it because it's energising and it's enlivening and they make themselves and life interesting to themselves with less fear. Mm-hmm. So they're prepared to go to uh, more complex places, more ambiguous places, more frightening places. Often on their own. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it might just be worth contextualising a little bit more yeah, well. why we end up in this territory. So, um, our our work is primarily with organisations and teams and individuals who have to, in order to be successful, uh, destabilise, challenge, provoke the status quo as it currently exists. Okay. So that status quo might be in their market, mm-hmm. it might be in their business, it might be in their team, it might be in themselves, and at its best, all those levels are being challenged at the same time. Mm-hmm. They, they nest within one another. The capacity to do that work is not something that our current and previous generation of leaders have taught themselves and been taught how to do, because most of their work and um, credibility mm-hmm. has come from essentially building asset-based businesses based, that they sell product of to others, yeah. and it's a relatively mechanistic, I create something, I store something, I distribute something, I sell something, I, I engage with my clients around that kind of mode. Yeah. So you can, you can get by with a fairly deliberate, relatively slow, highly analytical, problem-solving type of mentality. Mm-hmm. The businesses that we are working with have come from that heritage, but are now, uh, to put a shorthand around it, realizing something pretty fundamental needs to shift if they're going to be fit for the digital world that is upon us. But the form of leadership that's needed for the digital world is quite distinct and different around pace, disturbance, agility, learning, Mm. improvisation, creativity. Just the, the whole feel around a digital leader is c- completely different. Mm. And yet what we're trying to do over and over again is to make someone rooted in a 
corporate past fits for a business of, of the future. Yeah. Mm. When you when you go into that work and, and look to help people disturb the status quo, it is highly anxiety provoking. Mm. That's not a bad thing because mm. you can be highly anxious and safe. Yeah. Yes. Um, so being highly anxious also brings with it emotions of fear and distrust and paranoia and anger and um, a, a general emotional destabilization of some kind. Mm -hmm. And the connection of all of that to the conversation you started with us about what it means to be flawed but willing is mm -hmm. that you cannot live in that environment if you're trying to be this highly controlled, highly perfect um, uh, image of, of, of um, strong, stable <laughs> leadership yeah. that you want to project out into the organisation and the world. And it's interesting that phrase came out of my mouth because yeah. what we've just experienced in this country is yeah, an absolute absolutely. manifestation of how out of date that is. Mm. Yeah? And I'm not making a political point. Whatever your politics are, that was that is a fundamentally outdated and flawed model of leadership that the electorate in this country saw through and did not like. Mm. I'm not suggesting the alternatives were dramatically better, but we know that was that was just not on key. And so, in order to come out of that, we need to be comfortable with with anxiety that stems from vulnerability towards our flaws. That's where when people tell you that they think you are being authentic, I think it's because of something in that pot, right? Something in that recipe, something in that mixture that lands. Yes, we're inspired by people's imperfections, not their perfections. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, 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 the desire that our current Prime Minister has had to somehow inspire us through this perfectly scripted and highly structured and defended image mm. has not worked and it doesn't work. But if we could have just got access to some of what makes and made her human, which includes her flaws and mm. her willingness and her imperfections, then we may have said, yes, this is the person mm. who we want to entrust our, the leadership of this country to. And the same thing applies to organisational life. You mm. know, there are a whole host of leaders who re are realising they haven't got it anymore. And they're being replaced. But that they're still being replaced, unfortunately, by another version of themselves, just a bit younger. <laughs> and so that, that's where our work primarily comes into play, which is how are we going to shift this? Mm. Because something quite definitive is needed here. And so it's that it's that it's that as an overarching context I'd say that triggers off a load of other capabilities, but it's this particular one around working with your flaws and mm. your vulnerability that we've we've zoned in. Does that make make sense? It does. It does make sense. So what one lesson I can't see so players looking very ponderously out the window. because uh, I, I was um, I was reading some high fits yesterday, you know, Ron High Fits. I, I, it's a massive book, I've never come across it before written a few years ago about um, the practices of adaptable leadership okay. and, um, and in there he was describing something I thought, well he just described it so much more succinctly than we have I think, which was this way that people conflate authority with leadership um, authority meaning perfection, knowing um, clarity structure mm. uh, a sense of control and, uh, and leadership being in the moment, in the nowness working with everything that's known, unknown or unclear and being willing to stay present to it all and other people in the process of trying to work out how to solve problems. And I just thought it was a really, it was just a really, I, I think I photographed it actually, it was just a really beautiful piece in the book about that. We continue to conflate those two things together. Mm. Um, and what I think what you've just been describing, Kirsch, is, is an example of that actually. That, that leadership is, leadership is an emotional process actually. 
leading yourself is an emotional process, leading others is an emotional process. We should care more about the workplace. We should care more about people in the workplace. We should care about what our businesses are about in our society. And actually part of our work is often helping people to reconnect to what they do care about because they've been numbed out. Mm. They've just been completely numbed out. Yeah, I think this is an important part of it, isn't it? Because we, we stand very strongly for discomfort mm. as a part of organisational life, but we don't stand for stress. And I think there is a distinction be between those things. So when you say numbed out, that's, that's what it triggers in my mind, Claire, is that we, we meet people who are repetitively and highly stressed at senior levels in organisational mm -hmm. life. But mostly that is down to them trying to just do more of the very thing that is not working for them. So this turning the wheel, this turning the wheel um, form of leadership that we've, we've been describing about. When we talk about discomfort and instability and disturbance, those are the things that bring life to an organisation and to an individual mm -hmm. without necessarily stressing them. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's 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 it, it, it's it gives us access to the creative and the novel and the things that give most of us the buzz and the energy and the desire to be at work. Mm. Uh, we are not troubled by that, but we imagine all kinds of things will come as a consequence of being. Um, destabilized in that way, and that's not our experience. Our experience is it gives it gives new life to an organisation, and that is what we have to be about. Mm -hmm. We have to, yes, in our profession, um, uh, in our work, and in the work of our clients. And if we don't manage that, then the, the future for our large corporations is is not great. I don't think you know they 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 will be. Um, challenged from all kinds of directions mm -hmm. and won't be able to withstand that challenge and we we see that already in a number of different forms um, in the news almost almost daily if not yeah. well, i think about flawed as simply being incomplete i mean I, you, when i think about the work we've done over the years i would say that we're just as much flawed and willing ourselves in mm -hmm. practice, aren't we? Absolutely. You know, I mean, the reason we keep going back to it repetitively is because we care very deeply about it but we're, but we're constantly uncovering our limitations in the same way. Yeah, and the work to bring it to its very kind of pragmatic, practical um, orientation is in itself a mess. And, and we don't know when we start where it will finish. And nowadays, increasingly, I'm providing clients with less and less of an agenda yeah. for the work we might do because we do not know mm. but if we can contract at the start that this is going to be messy and inelegant uh, and creative mm -hmm. and at the end of it you will be dissatisfied and we will have made some kind of breakthrough that we wouldn't have got otherwise mm. and if we can contract all of that at the beginning then we often end up in a, in a good place mm. um, or a good enough place uh, but, 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 but absolutely that then has to be modelled by ourselves so uh, my ability to um, do this work is very highly rooted in my comfort with my own fallibility mm. and my desire in the moment to call it. So if I have pushed someone too far or stretched a conversation for too long or not made enough um, sense of something or inappropriately structured something, or you know, this is all part of the work and declaring it in the moment, asking for some help, um, uh, trying to recover it mm. and showing how quick recovery is possible. That's that's all part of this this work. Yeah? Mm. So we, we cannot look uh, or be perfect ourselves in the face of what we're asking of our clients. If we're really going to roll our sleeves up and be in the work with them, it means also begging 
for quite a bit of forgiveness for when we screw up ourselves and we we do. Mm. And um, so you, you hinted at it a little bit there. Um, in terms of so when that happens, how, how do you go about sharing that? Again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious about how. Yeah, how, how do you do that? So how in, in that moment when you think you've pushed the conversation too far or you've held something for too long or you've explained something poorly, how, how do you how do you say? Just that. Okay. Just that. I mean, just that, really. It's just a question of... Um, so I suppose our work is not about um, uh, role being enrolled. So we mm-hmm. enrolled into a particular thing of consultant or teacher or okay. trainer or facilitator. Yeah. We, we don't consider ourselves to be enrolled, and that means we can't hide behind it. That also means we don't have a script for it. So uh, so if we're sensing, so if I'm sensing mm-hmm. something is going awry or I've pushed or I've distorted, maybe I have my own strong feelings about something, mm-hmm. the moment I get present to that or I can see sort of signs of feedback in the room, then, then we just have to pause and we have to own it. Mm-hmm. And it you know, the, the more conventional end of that would say, well, so we're attempting to role model um, what, what we want other people to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, we are at some level, but we're not doing it in order to role model. Okay. So it's not a strategic move no. in that way? No. Okay. So it's not, a, it's not another part of the script or the enrolment. It's, mm. it's really a way of being alive to what's unfolding and what's not working where we're getting stuck in the moment. And then simply being willing to engage with that in a distress-free way, in a shame-free way as possible, in order to move something on. So it's not that you don't have those feelings. Mm. I'm sure we all have those feelings periodically. We may just be a bit more familiar with the feeling of the discomfort of that, but we don't let it get in the way. Mm. There was a lovely example. Um, one of our colleagues a couple of months ago I went to do a piece of work with a large group, big cohort, and um, the whole piece of the work they were inquiring into was how to be more flexible, more agile, and, and, to, and, to, um, and to more rapidly come into relationship with mistakes and things that weren't working and then mm. backtrack and learn from it. And uh, it was a big daunting piece of work. And in the heat of it, she suddenly realised that actually what she was proposing wouldn't work. But they didn't know it yet. Mm-hmm. And now she could have pretended. She, she just ripped it up and started again in the moment. And what was interesting was it turned out to be the most pivotal thing in the work that day mm-hmm. was that people saw a change of mind and a rapid recovery without blame or shame change the tone and the flavour of the work completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much in that I want to ask questions about. Um, so for, I'm going to say the fact line so that I can remember to come back to them later. So I'm interested in this idea of enrolment because um, one of the things that fascinates me is the identity work that people do. So is the the way that the, the roles or the personas they take shape who they are, what they allow themselves to do or not to do. Um, and, and I'm also interested in um, what you said right at the end about the uh, ripping it up and starting it again without, um, without blame, without shame, and changing mind, that was it, changing mind that you said that got me. Because... Um, I, I don't think that's a very credible trait in in 
I don't think it's viewed as a credible trait in the workplace. You know, so once you've made a decision to do something, to then change your mind and go back on that and, and, and own that change of mind and go back on that and change, I think is, um, and I've deliberately framed that in business because the partner wants to almost go back to the politics aspect because there was some mind changing in that recently and the way that that was framed, I find really fascinating. Um, but anyway, that's it. I'll stick away from the politics stuff and keep it in the workplace for now. So can we start with the identity stuff then? Because I, I really liked that point you made around being enrolled and some of the limitations that that can bring. So in, in the work that you do with the businesses or the individuals they work with, does being enrolled get people stuck? I suppose that's a very close question. I'm hoping you'll give me some latitude and give me a nice big open response rather than just yes or no. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Well, the first thing you should know is I've never used that word enrolled before. Oh, really? Until this now moment, so okay. I don't have any prepared answer. For no, that's fine, that's okay. Um, Kershaw may have a better if you are, but I, I mean, for me, I think fixed identities in the workplace associated with either behaviour or leadership, a collapse with authority, reduce your manoeuvrability. Mm. So they set up a set of protocols and expectations which run both ways from people who are leading and people who are being led. Mm. Um, and they, then they get locked in in a kind of figure of eight. Mm -hmm. And when people try, and I, we've, I, I've seen some examples, so we're, we're working with a CEO, we have done for a number of years, um, who leads a healthcare company. And he has deliberately, deliberately tried to, if you like, bend and break the traditional identity of what a CEO does in that business. Okay. And in the early phases of that, um, they have a policy where all feedback just comes in and they don't edit it, so he gets to see it. Okay. And some of the ways that he was described by members of his company, I mean, were deeply hurtful. Okay. Well, at least they would be to a person who wasn't a challenging leader. Deeply hurtful, deeply personal, very aggressive. Mm. Quite a lot of that was based in a broken expectation because he broke an identity mould okay. about how he should behave. Okay. So I think they do they do limit your manoeuvrability. Yeah. I think that's a that's a positive um, uh, example, a, a, a more negative one, which is the same point but coming from a different direction. Is that once you establish an identity called expert CEO, stronger and cleverer than anyone else. Um, uh, quick to blame, quick to persecute if you do anything wrong, never satisfied, incredibly demanding. Mm. Then, as you as you learn, as you shift, and as you as you look to flex that, there's a complete disbelief in your organisation that any of it is is real. Yeah, and I've seen that over and over again as well. That that because of the privileged position we have, we get to hear these individuals talk about how much pain that causes and how much they don't want to be in that frame, how much more difficult and exhausting it is, how they don't want to be seen or related to that way, mm -hmm. how they are ready to try and shift it, and they do. And the first few times it almost doesn't matter how they show up, they will still be seen and listened to and, and heard in, from their old identity. Yeah. And so it, it, it's incredibly difficult to shift you know, this, this idea of identity. It's no simple. It's no simple thing. Um, because it's the um, so there's a there's a sociologist who I, I'm I am a huge fan of called Irving Goffman, um, and so his, his first works were in sort of the fifties, but more 
his, he got more more publicly known in the sixties and seventies. <clears throat> his um, so he, he talks about the concept of face. So not from a, an Eastern, you know. So there, there are links, I suppose, to a, to a, an Asian kind of Eastern cultural version of face. But he he talks about face being the line that you take in in in, in our multiple interactions. And when you take a line, other people have to let you take that line. And sometimes that line can be given to you by your seniority or by a role that you you have or a title that you're given. Um, so. So some people let you take that line more than others. But once you take that line and other people have let you take that line, then taking a different line becomes tougher, especially the more and more and more that line has been, mm-hmm. to push a metaphor maybe a bit too far, the more that line has been trod or trodden, the harder it is then to, to take a different one. And not necessarily because the, the individual might want to take a different line, but the others, are, the others, which can be one other person or many other people, won't let you take that other line. They'll bring, they'll do everything they can to bring you back to the line that you're, that you're expected to take, either because you're expected as a in, your, in the role that you're in, or because you've taken it before or whatever. Um, and so his, his Gartner's work on face has been kind of taken and, and extrapolated out by different researchers. But for me, I've. I, I synthesise it down to that there's four, maybe five, so I haven't synthesised that at all. So, there, so I think there's four, maybe five um, as, aspects of face that are always at play. So one of those being your who you are, so your sense of self, your values, your beliefs, that sort of stuff. The second one is the company that you represent. So if you if you represent an organisation, you have, you have an aspect of their identity as part of who you are at that time if you're part of it. Then you've got your competence or your role to, you know, your, your professional. Sometimes some people call it professional, some people call it competence face. But your, you know, the role that you represent. So if you're an FD or if you're an, you know, or if you're an MD or if you're an ops director or whatever that can be, you've got, you, know, you, you should have some competence in that particular area. And then lastly is the relationship face with the people that you're interacting with, because the lines that you take and vary between who you're with. So when you're with your boss, you take a different, often people take a different line to when they're with their team or when they're on a stage presenting to, to many, many people. Um, and those four kind of aspects, each and every, everyone works with them in different ways and some become, if you use a, a spot metaphor, which may not help my explanation, but I'll do it anyway. If, if you think of it as like a stage, you know, uh, Goffman talks about from a stage point of view that some are foregrounded and some are backgrounded. So depending on what you're doing, depending on what you're talking about and what you're doing, you can change footing. So you can say, right, I'm going to foreground this one now and I'm going to background this one instead, or I'm going to foreground these two or background these two, and you can play with it in that way. Um, so now I've articulated all of that. What, are, what was the point I wanted to make? So. Therefore, working with identity is hard work to do, but we put very little thought into it. I think, generally speaking, if I can make an unfair gross generalisation across lots of across the population, I don't. I think in the workplace, executives especially give very little thought to how they're working and grappling with those identities, and therefore that can make it harder to shift and change or to shake some of those off. So the individual you were talking about, Kershaw, you were saying how they, they constantly, was it, I can't remember who was saying that, they constantly redefine and break what it is to be a CEO. I can imagine how, how hard work that is, but also how liberating that is, but also how 
I wonder how disconcerting that is for some of the people who want him to be straight and true and to mm-hmm. take a consistent line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to be talking a lot. No, 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 I think, I think that what's important about that for me is consistency is not necessarily straight and true. Conflating yeah. those two things together is yeah, not good a point. difficult Yeah, good point. Yes, thing. yes. But also, I think the other, the other piece that comes out strongly from what you just said, Bill, is that, is that there are two parties in mm. the yes. Yeah, yeah. Both the, 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 the actor and the audience, uh, I think, have equally strong yeah. um, influences on this and, and, and much of our work, yes, is with the actors themselves, but it but then also has to be with an audience that says they want one thing but but acts in a in mm. a um, p- particularly around the concepts of empowerment and uncertainty and difference mm. of opinion and contention and you know the, these things are easy to ask for and and also easy to reject when they come your way because mm. of course it puts more Responsibility on, on your part yeah. in, in all of this, uh, and so I think you know, uh, taking away this kind of historic obsession with a very narrow focus on the the CEO and the top team, and broadening it to how do you work with the system, is is a really key part. And I think that comes out of what you what you just offered us. Yes. So we had a, we run these, uh, we haven't done it this year actually, but we ran these very intensive weeks for challenger leadership, highly experiential, lots mm. of emotional charge in all sorts of reasons, and um, that deep exploration, like diving into a deep pool about who you are and mm. the cause and liberating yourself from anxiety and all that kind of stuff. And um, we had this chap who really, really became fascinated by witnessing all of these different identities during the course of the week. Okay. And to, to your point, mm. and uh, so we asked him because we're, we're always when people get fascinated by stuff, we grounding it in the now. Mm. We asked him if he wanted to run an identity retreat, and so we, we put together our identity retreat. He's run it twice, and um, and in that retreat we do an exploration with masks, with okay. clothing, mm. uh, with pre-inquiry questions, and we had in the last one we had a whole bunch of people, senior people in organisations coming along, just taking a weekend to try and come into relationship mm. with the identities that are in their foreground mm-hmm. in their organisation at this point in their life and the ones that were either put in their background which I privately describe as the problem with the midlife crisis mm-hmm. or, or the things that have been put away or are knocking on the door wanting to come into the foreground mm-hmm. but don't have a place space and, um, and, and he's done some fabulous work in that really since I mean, so he's leading an organisation mm. uh, but it became his personal inquiry and it's, it's helped his own work enormously but he's generously provided a space uh, with our assistance for other people to do that kind of inquiry mm. and, uh, and the thing I remember most about him was um, putting himself into the identity of other people around him not just for 10 minutes, mm. but for an hour, two hours, three hours, and really enrolling them, mm. and learning so much from that process, that being that part of the audience. Yeah. I, think, I think what that illustrates in part is what is needed to, to do this work. And, mm. and so traditionally, I think we've, we've thought for too long about these processes of development as if there's some kind of linear path, or you know, the, 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 the metaphor of a journey has become yeah. Uh, a bit uh, X factor, uh, cliche ridden, mm-hmm. uh, but is still the predominant one that that is used. Now, I'm, it's used not in a linear way. So journeys have all kinds of twists and bends in the road. Got that, 
but journey's still have a start and an end, right? Mm. And I, I think what, what, why that doesn't help us is that the, the, this quality of learning is not a journey. It, it's, it's like a series of predicaments and dilemmas and tension points, and it, it's just a constant unfolding of mm. life as it comes at you. So that helps me, and it, I, I think it helps our clients quite a lot as a distinction because it stops this obsession with, I started here, and have I got this far, and when will I get to that yeah. end point? Yeah? Yeah. And it becomes a, mu- a much more hopeful, <laughs> much less demanding practice in some ways, of just saying, well, no, there isn't one, there isn't a destination. Mm. It's simply how I will now meet tomorrow's dilemma mm. in a way which is more consistent with the way I want to move rather than where I'm trying to move away from. Mm. And, and, and and that, to my experience and our way of thinking and our writing, is the only way that identity shifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And if, 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 if I don't believe that, I lose quite a lot of hope. Okay. Because I know if I just make it very personal for a moment, I've been working on my own shit for years, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is still around. Yeah. And it possibly might be around you know, in an even more stuck and destructive manner than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. So that's a pretty hopeless state to get to, right? Except that... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't need you to back me up on that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Except that in in the moment that I meet the next dilemma coming at me this evening from my children or tomorrow from a teammate or the day after from a client, I, I can only try and Applying my learning in that moment in a way which makes makes some mm-hmm. kind of difference, then I feel a bit more hopeful, mm-hmm. um, a bit less weighed down by it. Uh, yeah. And Caroline glancing each other across the table because there was a big intake of breath, and I wasn't sure if that was you know, whether you got something you wanted to say or. or... Oh, yeah, I, just, I mean, I do find that very moving. I mean, and I think it's right. I do find it very moving. I mean, I think it's and it's important in our work. That's been an important part of our process, isn't it? Mm. But I, you know, listening listening to you, and I know you really well. Describe that. I find that as moving as I do when I hear clients describe it in slightly different ways in their own language. And it just, you know, I think about when I think about all the encounters we've had over the years, and there've been many years and many encounters. And you, you're right, lots of those people come back for long periods of time in a sense because. Because we do know how to walk beside people without judging them, um, and that's important actually, and that's often missing in this kind of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the, the, I guess the thing that's just just comes to mind again, and it, and it always comes up for me that um, you know there there are three really interesting vows in Zen. I mean, there are so many; it's just not true. But there are three particularly interesting ones, and the mm. first vow is the vow of not knowing. Okay, and that's. That's an interesting uh, statement in the context of what we're describing because often not knowing evokes quite strong emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. um, but we try to practice the vow of not knowing, and, uh, and, and leaders who try to practice that have more opportunity to be um, more intimate with what's happening commercially, strategically, mm-hmm. culturally, and try and find out rather than assuming they know. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is the vow of um, bearing witness. Uh, which, when we were doing our early research, we, we, we called it witnessing the establishment, which is simply being able to see or presence 
or experience what's actually happening in all parts, whether you like it or not. Mm. And, and what naturally arises from that is our compassionate action. So that they're nested in each other, to use that mm-hmm. word again. Yeah. You know, if you if you try to practice not knowing, which is the willingness to break open your identity, yeah. not getting caught up by the negativity associated with feeling vulnerable. If you try to practice that as a leader, if you try to um, be presentful to all parts of the situation, all parts of the team, all parts of the commercial problem, all parts of the strategy, all parts of yourself, mm-hmm. including the bits that don't feel so great, the fluid mm-hmm. bits, somehow compassion for yourself and for others naturally begins to arise and that just changes your action. And I, I, I think that was a statement, I think what you were saying was a very compassionate statement. And mm. To um, demonstrate the difference between us, Claire's inspirations have come from a deep study of Zen Buddhism and mine I'm going to offer you from watching Wonder Woman okay. with my two year daughters who are coming up to eight and ten. So it was my 10-year-old's 10th birthday, and one of the things she wanted to do on her birthday weekend was go and see Wonder Woman. Mm. So off we went, and I, and I sat there, and um, there's a point in the film where fairly typically, and this won't ruin it for anyone, this is the, the, it's a story of a journey full of dilemmas and, and mm. predicaments they face along the way. They're a band of, band of brothers and sisters that have to do this thing, and they face into these things as they go. And one of the band is brought along because apparently he's this incredibly skilled sniper. Mm. But in the moments that um, Wonder Woman asks him to take this incredibly difficult shot, he can't do it. And uh, she says to one of the other team that evening, well, what, what's he here for then? What's the, what's the point of it? And the message she gets back is a kind one, which is, um, which is uh, rooted in what Claire just said. And one of the, other, the rest of the team says, um, everyone's fighting their own battle. Mm-hmm. Everyone's fighting a battle, and and she gets an adjustment around her kindness. So the next morning, when they're off again, and the sniper says, "You don't need me. I'm not sure I'm necessary. I think I'll stop here. Um, I'm not sure what I'm here for." And she says, "Of course, we need you. You're here because you can sing, mm-hmm. which is another great quality that that he has." Um, but I think that act of kindness in the moment was transformative in the film, and then of course he recovers his mm. his skill at, yeah. at, at doing his his shooting right, at, the, at the same time. And uh, I, I think there's something in that quality of kindness that is that is uh, both 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 missing and desperately needed mm. in our organisations today. Certainly in the organisations we work in and with the clients we work with, uh, it is easy to lose sight of it is most difficult to grab hold of in those moments of high uncertainty and distress and destabilization. Mm. Um, but if there was one transformative thing that we could encourage each other to do is in those moments to reach for, for a kind response uh, as, a, as a starting point, as an opening to something else. And, and when we are able to do that with each other, then everything else falls into place. Mm. Um. And would a, I'm, I'm playing some of the language that you, you guys have used so far, I'm trying to think what, what's the near enemy of kindness, because I can imagine, so I don't know if that's platitude, rescuing. or rescuing. rescuing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Superwoman didn't rescue him, right? It wasn't 
but of course you're a phenomenal sniper. You have you, you've done the following, and we know you can do it. But that wasn't it, right? It wasn't. It wasn't a. It wasn't a. Let me take the shot for you next yeah, yeah, time. Right? Yeah. Of course, but let someone else take the shot. That's not. That that would be a, a form of rescuing. Right? Mm. Kindness is just in that moment, in that example, naming, authentically naming a quality that meant they needed in there. Mm. Um, that didn't feel right rescuing to me as I was as I was watching it. Mm. And you can tell the difference if you look inside yourself because rescuing just feels a little bit icky. Kindness feels liberating. Mm. Yeah. And when you when you describe that ickiness or the liberating, is that from a is that from the perspective of the to playing the what you just said, is that the perspective from Wonder Woman or from the sniper? So yeah, well, it would feel icky to the sniper, and I suspect it would feel icky to Wonder Woman if she was able to look inside, because rescuing typically comes from our own distress mm. in response to the other person's the distress. distress. Yeah. And and that's the icky bit, right? Mm. That we're acting not really, not really completely motivated by the other, but mostly motivated by what's going on for us mm. in that moment. Because we and want to end it or finish it. Or exactly. It or exactly. And, and that's what it brings us a little bit full circle to saying, and it's our inability to tolerate our own anxiety, our anxiety in relationship, our anxiety in teams, our anxiety in businesses. Mm. That means we don't do this work. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the that's the heart of this this work. How do you bring your ability to cause anxiety around you and to work with your own and other people's as you cause it in such a way that the whole business can move forward rather than fragment or collapse or um, kind of self-destruct. So I feel torn between, because um, you said just a few seconds ago that brings us full circle mm. back to where we began. Um, so part of me is thinking, oh, should we? Have we literally come full circle? And have we have we come to the end of um, uh, of our conversation? But I, but I also am enjoying it so much. That I kind of don't want to lose it down either at the same time, really. Um, <clears throat> So a couple of things that we've referred to that the listener might that we have we referred to implicitly that the listener might not know about explicitly. So we talked about challenger a few times. We talked about the challenger retreat, mm-hmm. and you talked about challenger leadership. And we haven't really explained what that is. Would it be useful to just to give a, a an explanation for the listeners of what what that mean, what that is and what that means for you guys? So I think we did a little bit of it earlier on. We were trying to contextualise some of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, our our work, our practice, our passion, our research, our writing is rooted in how do you stand with one foot inside the status quo and one foot outside? How do you stand at the edges of the established system and ways of working and cause it to be different? In a nutshell, that's our that's our interest and that's what we've what we've written about. That's what's informed our experience in that kind of work is what's informed this conversation. So. Okay. Um, so before I do bring it together, then um, and we'll get into some sort of questions I've asked a lot of guests around reading and stuff like that. Um, before I do that, though, is there anything else that either of you or me, I don't think myself, is there anything else that anyone is thinking, feeling, wants to say before we sort of put it together? Okay. 
I just think that um, that uh, notion of kindness is is worthy of pausing on, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, because in in the stories that you were illustrating about it, and the way I was thinking about it, I think it's a combination of vulnerability and strength. It's a combination of tenderness and determination, as opposed to rescuing or avoiding. And um, and I don't think we talk a lot about kindness in organisational life, actually. Mm-hmm. I think we talk a lot about that at all. No, it's not. It's not like if if I look at all of the sorry, I'm interrupting, which is very bad form. But if I look at the data that I've collected talking about culture, kindness very, very rarely features. Kindness is, is a like is a word that doesn't feature in the data sets that, that I've got. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason it's really pertinent to our work and our client base is this particularly applies as you get more senior mm. in organisational life. It's and, and the, the, the bit that's saddening is that it's almost as if we have justified to ourselves a massive deficit in uh, in empathy towards these people who we imagine are highly paid enough not to need kindness. Okay. And they probably tell themselves that same story as well. In fact, many of them said that to me. You know, I get paid enough not to have to. Uh, be concerned about how kind or not people are to me, or how kind I am or not to me. And uh, I think that is a false uh, equation. And I, 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 of course, I'm not the best for the individuals we work with, but my motivation on this is is wider than that. It's, it's rooted in the belief that if we can practice and if we can close that deficit, then ultimately we will change not just those individuals but their teams and their businesses, society and the world. There, there, is, there is enough of a ripple effect uh, that I've seen enough times to be, to be convinced by. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, there, are, there are difficult populations to feel kind towards. I think that our client base is one of them. Uh, and, and if we could bring more of that quality into the places we work in, and if we as a profession can do that, then, then that could be uh, a little bit of magic. Okay, all right. Um, so, what am I thinking? That so I'm thinking that the um, so one of the things that I get challenged on and by is that um, I have a, a habit of caring too much at times. So uh, I remember a couple of years ago I was doing a piece of work with a client, quite a long, you know, quite a long relationship. We worked together for about ten months, I think it was, and um, and I remember getting quite, not quite actually, because quite something wrong there. I got very close to to the organisation, to the people within it. And, cared a lot about what's happening, what's being done and so on. Um, and bear in mind I wasn't an employee. You know, there's a challenge of did I care too much? And, and the answer to that is yes. And did it did it hinder? I think at times. 
เปิดตาก็จะได้ I think I think we're going to ask the coin but I think that 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 caring so there was caring but there wasn't rescuing so what I didn't do was fix it so it was a, it was a conscious choice for me it wasn't about me I, I I care so much I feel like I have to fix it and make it better that was there for a bit and that and, and that was there and that was that didn't help me because then I felt like I didn't I wasn't influencing I wasn't making a difference that um, I remember using a metaphor but felt like we were at the top of roller coaster and then the wheels fell off um, and, I, and I was trying to put the wheels back on I couldn't I just didn't have the capability to fix it and then when I realised that I didn't have to fix it actually I could just carry on the ride and see where it goes um, that was but the care remained all the way through and so when like, I stopped caring when I realised I didn't have to fix the wheels back on I still cared a lot but I just went with went with the ride and, and went with it um, but I remember that being a really hard thing to do to really you know awake at night not sleeping properly horrible nutty feelings in my stomach and all of that stuff that went with it um, yeah but you implied from that or I think you, you alluded to the fact that someone or you had some feedback that you cared too much yeah as if somehow that's a negative thing. Yes. Yeah. But I think it, it, it leaves, doesn't leave me open to stuff, yes. <coughs> um, but it's, uh, no, no, I wouldn't going to say it's a cliche. It, it's, it's, some, it's a thing for me, but it's something that I'm just like, well, that's just me then. That's part of who I am, it's part of what I do. You know, it's the reason that, <coughs> that I will. Um, message random people through Twitter who, I, who I'm concerned about instead of I say random message people who I know through Twitter but I'm concerned about but I don't necessarily have a deep relationship with but I'll just message them and say I just want to let you know that there's two, uh, two non-judgmental ears here if you want to use them and, and just kind of leave it at that um, yeah so maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, I'm just kind of grabbing that in a flawed but willing <coughs> way Mm. Yeah. I do think it's hard work for a professional. I have a great deal of um, compassion for that struggle, and I think the fact that you're conscious of the struggle is a great thing. Mm. Suggests that you're you. working with it and on it. I'm sure Claire has. I certainly have um, struggled with the same. Uh, I trained for many years as a as a therapist, and that helped a lot mm. uh, to get to grips with some of this and to keep on challenging myself about how much of my distress was about me rather mm. than about them. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and also how much of my care could end up being debilitating for the client rather mm. than empowering for them. Mm. And uh, once I got myself, once I got my mind to a place of uh, uh, kind of adjustment around those things, i.e., I think I'm doing what will really help, and actually, it's it's doing the very opposite. Yeah. Something shifted, um, and 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 enabled me to leave it alone. And um, and so I, I started in, in a practice which I still hold true, very true to today, which is as long as I am sitting in front of a client, um, I'll give them everything I've got, and then. When I walk out the door, it's left with them. Mm. 
that that's not to say I stop caring. That's mm-hmm. not to say yeah. that there's no contact or conversation in between sessions or anything like that. But I'm, I'm very clear that it's left with them and not with not with me. And somehow that's enabled me to move much more easily in the world mm-hmm. um, as a result. But more importantly, I've seen the uh, client outcomes improve <laughs> significantly as a result. Yeah. Somehow me not me not taking over, you know, inadvertently dominating it somehow. Mm-hmm has made a big difference to their own ability to sort out their own life and their own work. And, um, and I think it is a lifelong thing that we have to keep honest about and keep on mm. examining. You know. and so yeah, and your, your story resonates a lot with me. Okay. So Larry, when you said you want us to stick with the kindness bit for a bit longer. <laughs> How are you with that now? Yeah. Well, there's lots going on in my head. I think I think we might do. I'll I'll take it away. Okay. So it's it's a takeaway mm. in, in a way for me. I, the, what what constitutes kindness as a leader? What constitutes kindness in a team? It's, it's and the near enemy of that would be always rescuing and avoidance and mm. jolliness. And actually, it's not about that. And then I think what I got out of that conversation between the two of you was the sense that. Caring needs to be balanced with skillful change ability. Mm. Um, and you put those two things together, and what you have is expressions of compassion, which may be quite understated, mm. you know, where one might let something go compassionately. So that was that was an interesting that was an interesting interchange. Mm. The, the other, I'm sorry. The other thing that arises for me about it is, is yeah. just perspective, actually. It's like it's not, what's, it seems really, really important to help people cultivate perspective. And perspective is not is not the gateway to copping out. Mm-hmm. So perspective is, is a way of having a sense of a long game or the fact that you're part of a lineage of people trying to shift organisations, change the way human systems work and, um, and how they serve society. And, and, and so you're part of a long game. So you will pick up a baton and you will do a certain amount. And, but what's important is that you don't wreck yourself in the process, but that you wreck yourself enough to be moved by your activity, mm. you know, that it means something to you. Mm. Um, so perspective, I think, is often um, misspoken about. It's, it's not an excuse for copping out or saying, well, I'm in the great scheme of things, blah, blah, blah. You know, mm. that, that, that kind of speaking is it's just an excuse for, for avoidance, really. Mm. So perspective plus kindness could be quite fierce. I've had a number of those formulas today. So you have perspective plus kindness. Um, what else did you say earlier? I don't know if I was just making up. Compassion and strength? No, I can't I'll have to listen back. There have been a number of things that you said today, which are all of which have really, um, yeah, triggered some thoughts for me. It's, that, that's an, it's an interesting thing that's emerged for you, because actually in, in Thought But Willing book, the structure is around power and love, mm-hmm. and the integration of those two qualities. And so it's interesting that that's what you've built mm-hmm. up, because I think there is, there is there is something that transformative about bringing those things together, mm-hmm. uh, and potentially the overcaring bit that you were talking about is when we have an imbalance of, of power. That's oh, sorry, of love, which then becomes kind of 
you know, anemic and drippy and, mm. and ineffective. And of course, the overemphasis on power has another effect. There's some integration of the two. It's the, the, the territory we're in. Mm. Mm. I think at a somatic level, as we um, as we finish here, it's kind of it's interesting to me how I feel differently now than I did an hour ago. Mm. And I think that's because we have been in a conversation that has had some of the qualities we've been talking about mm. in it. Yeah. And so I, I leave it. I'm just, so I'm, I'm kind of reflecting on what it must be like for clients who are even more on the receiving end of this. We're kind of getting an experience of it now. And as I maybe it would be useful to hear how you are, but as I check into myself, I'm, um, I feel a little bit uh, less rigid, less tired. Um, I feel more connected to you as a person that I've never met before physically, yeah, yeah. something in that. Um, I'm more curious. Uh, I have some more excitement about the conversation that's to follow. Um, and I, I've also got an, a sense in which the next two days, which are going to be very intensive facilitation for two full days of a team that I don't enjoy uh, particularly, um, I'm, I'm just going to be more skillful. Mm. And I'm hoping we'll get a better result. As a result of spending an hour in this mm. environment, you know, yeah. and territory. And so I think that's that's part of maybe this is part of the benefit that we're talking about. Mm. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, it's good to be moved, isn't it? It's mm. good to have your life deepened by a conversation. Mm. You know, and I think I mean that's the essence of what we try to do. But we learned a long time ago that we couldn't do that for others without doing it for ourselves continuously. Mm-hmm. So, so has this conversation deepened my life quite likely? Mm-hmm. Yeah, reconnected me. You can see I'm a little watering around the eyes mm-hmm. over the past 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, um, yeah, so it's interesting, my, my voice changed like 20 minutes ago. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, there was a. There was a I, 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 I moved not, con, not consciously. As, as it was happening, I was like, I'm not an interviewer anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, there, whilst, whilst, yeah, there was a, there was a shift in, yeah, and changing my voice and a shift in actually. I by saying I'm, I'm part of it, but that implies I was separate to it before. But that's um, I can't think of a better word to do it. But I, I, I remember noticing my voice change. Mm-hmm. It was, um, Changing the inflection and saying that the world won't start as well. Um, but yes, very much enjoyed. Um, lots to think about. Um, this is definitely a podcast I've been listening back to a few times to, to go back over and, and to, to rehear um, everything that we've discussed and everything that we've covered. So, feeling very grateful to you both for, um, for your time. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, you know what, I don't want to do anything else, I'm just going to leave it there. So I'm going to say thank you very much, um, both of you. Thank you very much for, for your time um, today. And thank you, everyone, who, who listened to the podcast. And uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Hello there, fair podcast listener, and you've made it to the end. Thank you very much for listening all the way through to this uh, episode of the podcast. And I, one last request. Uh, one of the things that we want to do with this podcast is um, share insightful, helpful, useful and um, thought-provoking content with the big wide world. Uh, and one of the ways that we can do that is making sure that other people can find our podcast. And something that really helps 
is uh, people leaving us reviews so fair listener i'd be very very grateful if you could leave us a review on itunes or any other podcasting service that you use to let us know what you think of the podcast um and let others know actually what you think of the podcast um so that we can get this shared big and wide and proud so thanks very much for listening thanks for subscribing if you do thanks for listening if you don't um and yeah i think that's it been listening to the emotion at work podcast written recorded and presented by phil wilcox edited together by simon leverton you can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on twitter at, at phil wilcox thanks for listening